You're listening to the Bible uncut and unfiltered. We believe the Bible doesn't need to be watered down or cleaned up to be understood. Our goal is to provide a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. I'm your host, Colin Connor. Now, on to the episode. Imagine you're watching a movie with a friend, and you've started out, you get about 15 minutes in, and he picks up the remote and says, you know what, I know the scene that you need to see, and skips about 20 minutes ahead. And it's just a little bit into that scene, he goes, oh, you know what, you, you really have to just see the end in order to get this. So he skips you right to the end of the movie. About five minutes after that, he goes, how about we go back to the beginning and watch a few minutes there? After a couple of times of this, I'm thinking you would probably say, can we just watch the movie start to finish. Stories aren't meant to be skipped from part to part like that. You're supposed to watch them from the beginning to the end. The same thing with a book, right? You don't usually pick up a book and start in chapter 5 and then jump to 24 and then back to chapter 1 and then to chapter 13. That wouldn't make sense. And yet, so many times, that is what we do with the Bible. Think about the way that the Bible begins. Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning. What kind of books start that way? I'll give you a hint. It's not encyclopedia. You don't pick up a dictionary and see in the beginning. (laughs) That's not how history textbooks or science textbooks work, but it is how stories start. It's kind of like how today we might say a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away or once upon a time. It gives you the idea that this is going to be a narrative, that there's a story to tell. But most of the time when people pick up the Bible, they go all over the place with it. You might be reading a passage in Psalms today and then in Romans tomorrow or in the Gospel of John. It's the same thing with the average church sermon. The preacher might have his key text in the Gospel of Matthew, and then just a few minutes later, he's in one of Paul's epistles, and then he's in a minor prophet, and then he's in Exodus. They hop all over the place with it. I'm not necessarily saying that that's always bad, but a story is meant to be read start to finish. And so we want to begin our study here in Genesis at the very beginning, because I believe that this is the key to understanding the rest of the Bible. Now, I realize that Genesis, in especially the last hundred years of the church, has become a battleground for people who just want to fight over the beliefs that they already have. Be that about the length of the creation week, sex and gender, creation versus evolution, so forth and so on. But those aren't the arguments that would have been in the minds of the original audience. I want to encourage you to read this text like you have never read it before. I mean that literally. Whether this truly is your first time ever studying Genesis, or if you grew up in Sunday school and have been in church every time the doors are open, imagine as if this is the first time you have ever picked up this book. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know who Adam is. You've never heard of Abraham. You don't know that some guy named Jesus is going to come and die on a cross. All of that stuff is foreign to you. Imagine it like you're picking up a new novel or watching a new movie for the first time. You don't know any of the characters, any of the locations. Our aim is to address the text on its terms, not ours. Now, the questions that we have and that we often bring are good questions, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those are the ones the text is trying to answer. Ancient people just weren't worried about the same stuff that we are. They weren't asking questions about, is this a spherical planet. They weren't asking questions about original sin or the length of the creation days or the method of creation or sexuality or really any of the hot buttons that we bring in. This isn't about who takes God more seriously. If you're here, I'm going to assume that you do take this seriously. Now that might mean different things to different people, but if you're here, it's because you have questions and you want to learn. And so let's give each other the benefit of the doubt that we do take this seriously and we want to understand it. So I like to call this the stuff you don't know 
you don't know. In life, there are two kinds of information that you don't know. There's the stuff that you know you don't know, and the stuff that you don't know you don't know. Here's what I mean. I know that I don't know how to change the oil in my car. I'm not handy when it comes to mechanical work like that and with vehicles. It's not my thing. I do not know how to change the oil in my car, but I know that I do not know that. So that's one type of information that you might not know. But then the other type is the stuff that you don't know that you don't know. For example, did you know that the idea of giving a toast with a drink comes from the ancient Romans? They would actually drop a piece of toast in wine in order to cut down on some of the acidity of it and make it a little more drinkable if it wasn't that great of a wine. You probably didn't know that going in here. But you didn't know that you didn't know that. Probably never even crossed your mind of, well, why do we call this a toast? And if it did, maybe it was just for a joke. You did not know that you did not know that. <laughs> and when it comes to the Bible, the stuff that you don't know you don't know is more than just meaningless trivia that might help you out on a round of Jeopardy. It can actually really affect the way that you view the Bible. So we want to draw attention to those things as we go through our study, the stuff that maybe you haven't heard in church, the stuff that you don't know, you don't know. Let's talk about some key principles that we need to keep in the forefront of our mind as we go on this study. First and foremost is don't be an American tourist. America has a bad reputation for having some of the worst tourists in the world, kind of people who get off the plane and immediately go, anyone here speak English or where's the McDonald's? That is not appreciating the culture there. You have to realize that not everyone's an American, not everyone speaks English, and when you're on somebody else's turf, you have to respect their customs and their culture. You don't want to be the typical American tourist when you go on a trip out of country. Well, it's the same thing when you're reading the Bible. Don't be an American tourist when you're reading the Bible. If you were to go into the Middle East today, if you were to go into Israel, it's just an entirely different culture from ours. Now, imagine going back in time to the time of Jesus. That is also a very different culture from ours. So if you put those two things side by side of half a world away and over 2,000 years ago, or around 2,000 years ago, depending on, on when the Bible we're talking about, that is a very, very different culture than what we're used to. It's worth mentioning that the Bible was not originally written in English. The events of the Bible did not happen in America. So we can't expect the culture of this 2,000 plus year old book from the Middle East to match up with our modern American ways of thinking. And sometimes things just get lost in the translation. When I was in high school, I took a few years of Spanish, and one of the first things you learn in Spanish is how to say your name, how to introduce yourself. So I would say, me llamo Colin. And I would say that means my name is Colin. Now that's true. But if you know Spanish, you know that it's not 100% true. Because what I literally said is, I call myself Colin. Me llamo means I call myself. Now that means my name is Colin. It's the same thing. But it just doesn't flow well in English to say, I call myself Colin. If I tried to introduce myself to you that way, you'd probably go, what is wrong with this guy? It doesn't translate over well into English. So when Whenever you're crossing between cultures, crossing between languages, there will always be aspects that just don't quite transfer well. And that happens with the Bible. So we have to remember, this is an ancient Hebrew book for what we're dealing with here in Genesis. What we often call the Old Testament, uh, the Jews would call the Tanakh. It's the Hebrew Bible. They wouldn't consider it to be the Old Testament because to them they don't have the New Testament. So since it was their book long before it was ours, I like to call it by their name of the Tanakh. Genesis, the name would be Bereshit. A lot of times, 
times the Hebrew books of the Bible were named based on the first words in that book. And so Bereshit is the first word of the book of Genesis, and it translates to in the beginning. So hence the name Bereshit from the first word in the beginning. Or we kind of tend to get our English names courtesy of Latin, and so you get the idea of Genesis being the start of something. So let's talk about some of the key terms that would have meant something a little bit different in the time of the Bible than they might in our culture today. The first of those is water. Now, in an ancient Near Eastern mindset, water, and particularly the sea or the ocean, symbolized chaos. That makes sense because we have been able to do a lot as humanity. We have tamed wild animals. We have harnessed power of wind. We have cut down forests and created cities. We've done all these different things, but there's still a lot about our oceans that we don't know. And you can take the strongest person in the world, the best swimmer in the world, you drop them out in the ocean, and eventually the ocean is going to win. It's a scary place that is not easy to tame, even more so in an ancient world where they didn't have the same technology that we have today. Anytime you're out on the sea, you run the risk of the sea winning. It would often represent chaos, and in fact, in a lot of ancient mythologies, they would have sea creatures like sea serpents, sea dragons, representing the chaotic nature of water. And so the topic of chaos versus order is actually going to show up quite a bit here in these first few chapters. So keep an eye out for that. I'll definitely be drawing attention to it as we move forward. We also have to talk about the couplet of heaven and earth. Now, most of the time that the word heaven shows up in the Bible, it's actually not talking about the place where God lives. It's just a word that means skies, the skies above us. In English, we have singular and plural words. I can say that I have a dog or I can say I have dogs. You can have a phone or phones, so forth and so on. In Hebrew, you have that as well, but you also have a third option and that's dual. Because when I say that I have dogs, you don't know exactly how many I'm talking about. I could have two and it's dogs, or I could have 20 and it's still dogs. Uh, but in Hebrew, there's a special dual option where it is only two. And there are a few words that show up in that dual form. And this word for heaven is one of those words. It's the word shemayim. And it always shows up in this dual term. Whenever you see heaven in the Tanakh in the Old Testament, it's always this double term. It's always heavens or skies. And that's because there's really, an ancient perspective, two skies around us. There's the sky, quote unquote, around you that you breathe, you know, the air around us, the atmosphere. And then there's also the sky uh, above us that has the planets, stars, sun, moon, so forth and so on. So that's where you get the idea of plural skies. And over time, that idea came to refer to where God lives. Because if we believe in God and we're here on the land and we don't really see him here on the land with us, well, we can't go up into the sky. You know, humans can't fly. So, well, that must be where he lives. And so the, the idea of the space above us being God's space kind of came out of that idea, hence how you have heaven no longer just referring to the sky, but actually where God lives. So in the Bible, a lot of times when heaven appears, it is not necessarily talking about disembodied spiritual state you go to after you die. It's just talking about the sky around you. And Earth, similarly, does not refer to the globe. It hasn't even been a hundred years that we have had pictures of the globe of the Earth from 
outside of the Earth itself. That's just not the way that they were thinking. In fact, for an ancient Near Eastern culture like Israel, they would have viewed the world very differently than us. They would not have been thinking of a globe. They would have been thinking a lot of times of a flat disk that has water all around it. And then in the center, you have land. Now, over all of that, there is a dome. And we'll get to this dome next week when we start talking through the chapter here, because it is actually there in the Bible. But you can picture almost like a snow globe would have been the idea that they had. And then you had something that was holding the earth in place. Sometimes it's pillars, sometimes columns, but generally something along those lines, or it might even be on the back of an animal like an elephant or a turtle that was the mindset that they had when they thought of the planet that we live on they weren't thinking of a globe but rather of that concept of a disc kind of like no globe sort of thing so when you see the word earth in the bible it is not talking about the globe that was not in their mindset it's actually a word that means land now it can be land just in the sense of all of the dry land on the earth or sometimes it can also refer more specifically to the land that the story is taking place in, or a lot of times in the land of Israel. So those are two terms to keep an eye on. Another two that are going to be really important are the concepts of good and bad. Now, good and bad are not necessarily, they don't usually carry the same moral baggage that we tend to think of. Good and bad are really functional terms, especially here in the creation story. Something is good if it is serving its purpose. Something is bad if it is not serving its purpose. That word for bad in the Bible is the word ra, and it is often translated as wicked, but it doesn't necessarily mean morally wicked. It just means bad in the sense of something that is not good. If I heard that a friend's family member had died, and I had to tell that friend about that, the Bible would say that I am bringing raw news, wicked news, evil news, bad news. Now, what I'm saying isn't evil. It's not morally wrong, but it is considered to be raw, to be bad, because that's not good news. No one wants to have to share that. And in a way, it is kind of tied to wickedness because we live in a fallen world. So you have to share bad news sometimes just because of that. And similarly, good, the Hebrew word tov, has the idea of something serving its purpose. And so when at the end of each day of creation, God says that he saw it was good, it's not necessarily saying he looks out and sees moral good. And it definitely does not mean perfection. It means that the world is serving its purpose, that what he created on that day is accomplishing what it was supposed to. A lot of people read perfection into this creation narrative. But the Bible actually never says that the Garden of Eden or any part of God's creation was perfect, even before the fall. That's not what the word good is implying. Something perfect doesn't have to be improved upon. Yet God said that we were supposed to continue to rule and subdue his earth. Now, those are concepts we'll talk about later on. But just wetting your appetite as we're thinking through this here, because if creation was perfect, it wouldn't need humans to improve on it. But yet God actually gives them the opportunity to do just that. So when you see the concept of good, you have to think of it as meaning that what is there is serving its purpose. Now in the ancient world, something came into existence when it started to serve a purpose, when it was accomplishing a particular function. Uh, we tend to think of creation as being when you have nothing and now you have something. But in an ancient mindset, 
Creation was when you took something that was disorderly and you made it orderly. It's a very different way of thinking. John Walton has done a lot of work on this in his books The Lost World of Adam and Eve and also Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament. That's going to be a really important concept as we get into the first couple of verses next week to realize that creation in the Bible is not necessarily starting from nothing and going to something. It's starting from a disordered something and going into an ordered something. That's a very different way of thinking about it than we have as moderners. Remember, we're trying not to be American tourists. We're trying to respect the cultures and values that we are stepping into. We're trying to learn about that before we make our trip. There's also a theme of firstborn that shows up quite a bit in the Bible, and especially in the Tanakh. In a lot of Eastern cultures, the firstborn tends to be privileged in the family, especially in an ancient Near Eastern culture. There was an assumption that the firstborn was favored by God. A lot of times they would take over the spiritual leadership and even just the economic leadership of the family. But the Bible tells a different story. God has a way in the Bible of choosing the secondborn, or sometimes even the youngest, really just about anyone other than the firstborn in the family, in order to show that his love and blessing is for all people, not just the ones that society says are most important. That's going to be a very important topic that we will draw attention to in our study. There's also a lot of temple and priestly language that we will touch on as we go through this, and that's a little bit weird for people sometimes when they first hear that because the tabernacle doesn't come about until we get to Exodus, which is quite a ways in the future here, even though it's uh, the second book. There's quite a bit of time that Genesis covers, so the tabernacle is still quite a ways out, and then the temple even further out in the days of Solomon. But there are echoes of tabernacle and temple and priestly language hidden here in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. And I think they play a really important role in the story, so we'll be sure to draw on that. We also have to address ancient Near East creation myths. The Bible was not written in a vacuum. The culture of its time affected it. It drew on the popular stories of its day. If the Bible was written today, I tend to think that it would be referencing our culture. If someone was to listen to this episode in the future, they would be able to guess by the things that I reference a general time that I am speaking from. They would know that I'm recording after 1977 because I referenced Star Wars and Star Wars wasn't around before 77. Or maybe I mentioned something like COVID, and so they know it happened after 2019. Or who knows, maybe in the future there's some other major event that happens in the world that people talk about, and since I don't reference that, they assume that what I'm saying must have been recorded before then. We can gauge the writing of the Bible the same way. The authors drew on sources that were popular in their day. And a lot of this has really come to light in the last 100 to 200 years, as we have had a boom in archaeology and linguistics and understanding the languages and cultures of the ancient Near East, we've been able to start to study some of the literature that's been found and some of the cultures and understand how the Bible drew on many of those pre-existent stories. Every culture in the world has origin stories. It's kind of like how every superhero has an origin story, and every time we get a movie about the superhero, we get an origin story. How many times have we seen Batman made into a movie, and just about every time we have to see Thomas and Martha die in the alley? Those stories tell you about the hero and why you should like them, why you should follow their story. That's really what these ancient origin myths are. They are an attempt by these nations to say, this is why we are the way we are, this is why we believe what we do, and this is why we're right, and you should believe what we do too. The Bible is that for the Jews. It is a way to present their origin story and why they believe what they do. It's really like an elevator pitch to say, here's why we believe that what we believe is right. A lot of these ancient creation myths said 
that the world began through angry, chaotic gods bickering back and forth and fighting. For example, two of the most common ancient Near Eastern creation myths are the... Egyptian one, and really I should say one of the Egyptian ones, every culture had several. So some Egyptian creation myths and also Babylonian story called Enuma Elish. Those are probably the two most common. And they share a lot in common with the biblical story. Waters are the starting point for the Egyptian cosmology, but in their story the god Atum is birthed from the waters and then creates the other gods. So the water is seen as life-giving because of its central place in Egyptian life. Even today, a lot of Egypt is settled around the Nile, but it's Especially in the ancient world, with the climate of Egypt, most of the culture was centered around the Nile, so it only makes sense that their origin story would focus on water so much. And here we are in the Bible, and it begins with water as well. Babylonian story also begins with water, but it is a much more violent story about the deep water god and the above water god creating other gods. Now, if you're saying the above water god, what are you talking about above water? Don't worry, we'll talk about that. You actually already know what I'm talking about if you've read through Genesis before. You might just not realize it, but we will get there. So you have waters below and waters above, and the god that represents the waters below fights with the god that represents the waters above. And you have the god Marduk, who tries to build a kingdom on land, and when the sea gods try to stop him, Marduk rips open the sea god and creates those waters above and below. Both of those stories have winds splitting the waters above and below in some form. And we have that here in the Genesis story as well. Waters are going to be divided, and you have the wind or spirit of god present there. So you can already see, just touching on a few examples here, how these stories are very similar to the biblical one. And in most cases, these other ancient mythologies predate the biblical story. So that means that the Bible's authors were drawing on those other narratives. And that's totally okay. I know for a lot of people, it can upset them a little bit when they first hear about some of these other stories, because they've been taught that the Bible is unique in its telling an origin story of the world. So when you show them, that that's not true. It can feel like you're tearing apart the Bible, but that's not the case. The Bible is still very much authoritative. It is still very much a story worth listening to, but we have to understand that what makes it unique is not it's telling us about the origins of the world. Just about every culture tries to explain the origins of the world, and the Bible is just one of many of those stories, and it's actually written in many ways in contrast to those stories. Think about how I mentioned some of the violence that is in a lot of those ancient Near Eastern myths. Well, when you look at the story in Genesis, there is no violent account. God just speaks creation into order. That's very different. In fact, we'll see as we go through the study that there are many Easter eggs written in there that are slams against the gods of the nation. So it's like each of these stories is written in dialogue with the others, and it's kind of in almost like a rap battle, if you will, of the Bible and these other ancient Near Eastern myths. One of the big topics that's going to come up in our study is ancient Near Eastern creation myths. Now, the Bible is a unique book in a lot of ways, but there are also a lot of ways that it was similar to writings of its culture. The Bible is not the only ancient writing that we have, especially in the last one to two hundred years. We've been able to discover a whole lot more through archaeology of ancient creation stories and the mythologies that went along with ancient cultures, sometimes even just mundane writing. One of the big discoveries has been some ancient Near Eastern creation myths that sound a lot like the stories that we find in the Bible. Probably the most common example of this is the flood narratives. A lot of people have heard 
heard of different flood stories from cultures around the world that sound similar to the Bibles, but it's also true in creation stories. Two of the most common are one of the Egyptian ones and then also a Babylonian one. One of the Egyptian ones is called the Coffin Texts. That's C-O-F-F-I-N. Here's an excerpt from it. We'll see if we can find a couple of things that sound similar to the Bible story. So it begins with, the waters speak. So we're already talking about water here. That sounds like the very start of Genesis as well. I am the waters, unique, without second. We would say that about Yahweh being unique and without equal. Atum, that is the God speaking here. Atum speaks, that is where I evolved. On the great occasion of my floating, that happened to me. I am the one who once evolved. Circle it who is his egg. I am the one who began therein in the waters. See, the flood is subtracted from me. See, I am the remainder. So we have the dividing of waters. I made my body evolve through my own effectiveness. I am the one who made me. I built myself as I wished, according to my heart. So you have a pre-existent God that didn't have any creator, and he is working over chaotic waters to split them in order to form land. That sounds pretty similar to what we're familiar with from Genesis 1. Now, obviously, there are differences as well, but I just want to point out some of these ways that it might sound familiar. Perhaps the most famous ancient Near Eastern creation mythology would be the Enuma Elish. This is the Babylonian version. It's like their Genesis story. This is part of what usually is connected with like Epic of Gilgamesh and the Flood story that they have as well. And here is an excerpt from that one. When on high no name was given to heaven, nor below was the netherworld called by name. So we have a pre-creation state here. Primeval Apsu was their progenitor, and creator Tiamat was she who bore them all. Now, uh, you might not be familiar with the names Apsu and Tiamat, but they were Babylonian gods representative of water or represented by water. Apsu particularly about the deep abyss, just kind of out in the middle of nowhere, chaos water, and Tiamat specifically kind of the sea that was around them. So here we're going back to the creation story. They were mingling their waters together when no gods at all had been brought forth. None called by names, naming, shows up in the biblical story. None destinies ordained. Then were the gods formed from these two. And then as the story goes on, all of the gods develop with Ea as basically like the head god and his son Marduk, also at the top of their pantheon. And then when that one god, Tiamat, tries to take over with all of her chaos waters, she becomes a giant sea dragon. And we're going to see that come into play in the biblical story as well, even here in these first couple chapters. Then Marduk fights Tiamat, and in the fight actually rips her body in half to put waters above and waters below. Yes, that sounds really strange, but it's actually very similar to the biblical story as well, because that mentions waters being separated above and below. And we'll talk more about what the above waters especially are as we go on with the podcast. So you'll notice that in both of these, waters are at the very start of the story, and you have gods battling over the chaos of these waters to create, and basically putting like little Easter eggs into the biblical narrative. For anyone who's not familiar, Easter egg is a term in a movie where you're hiding little details in there that reference other things, so it has nothing to do with actual Easter eggs. It's just about finding details tied to other stories. Both of those stories that I mentioned, the Egyptian and the Babylonian one, have wind splitting waters above and below. That happens in the Genesis story. The main difference, though, is that in Genesis, Yahweh creates completely non-violently. There is no fight. I think that's the main thrust of the Genesis creation narrative, is it's kind of throwing shade at all of these other stories where they say your gods needed to fight other gods in order to create everything, and our god is just so awesome that he speaks into existence. There's no fight for him. In fact, where a lot of these stories name the other gods, like the Babylonian one mentioned Apsu and Tiamat and Marduk, the Egyptian one 
Further on you go, it mentions Shu and Tefnut and Nut and Geb and a whole bunch of other gods. Rog ends up in there too. All you have here is Yahweh. And in fact, a lot of the key terms that could be used to describe other gods are completely left out of the creation story. So it's almost like the narrator is specifically trying to show by their absence that these gods were not a problem for Yahweh, that he is the only god, that he is the one who is able to achieve all of this on his own. Kind of like an ancient version of a rap battle. You kind of have to read these, like they're going back and forth, dialoguing with each other, debating over the origins of the universe. So the biblical story is an extremely intentional demythologizing of ancient Near Eastern cultures. I bring attention to all of this because I want you to be aware that there are other stories similar to the Bible, and that is not a scary thing. These stories are not our enemies. Sometimes when people hear about these for the first time, and they start to notice some of the similarities to the biblical text, it can be unsettling because they're used to the Bible being the only piece of ancient literature that they know. But these stories actually help us to understand the context that the Bible was written in. Let's talk a little bit here about the structure of the book of Genesis, because if you can understand the way that the book is structured, it can help you to understand the book itself better. Genesis is broken down mainly into sections that are divided by what's called a toledot. Now, toledot is a Hebrew word, and it's usually translated in English as these are the generations of, or something along those lines. So whenever you see that, particularly here in Genesis, that is one single Hebrew word called Toledot. And every time that shows up, it's like it's signaling a new direction for the story to go in. It's kind of like those intermission cards in the old movies from like way back in the day of originally going to a movie theater and you would have the, the intermission cards go up. That's what the Toledot is. And a lot of times they're followed by a long list of names, a genealogy, the stuff that we like to skip over in our read through the Bible in a year plan. But those are actually key to understanding the book. They're not just there for filler. Sometimes the way we treat them, it's like writing a paper in high school when you have a particular word count and you can't think of anything to say, so you just keep saying the same thing over and over again. And so we just kind of treat the genealogies that way. It's just filler. But they're actually there for a purpose, and they serve to link the story that you have been reading with the story that you're about to read. So whenever you see a genealogy in Genesis, that is a signifier to you that the story you are reading is ending and you're about to go into a new one. And it tells you how the two stories connect, usually by the genealogy linking them up. So there are several of them. There's at least nine. Most people say there's 10 to 13 Toledot sections in Genesis. There's 13 times the word shows up, but it gets a little funky in how it's used. We'll explain that a little more when we get into Noah's story. But that's a significant part of the structure of the book of Genesis, this Toledot formula. Speaking of the number of times that comes up, numbers play an important role in the book as well. And sometimes they're even written down into the grammar of the particular sentences. I realize this is not going to be interesting for everyone, but I'm a little bit of a grammar nerd, and so I find these little tidbits fascinating. It's just amazing the way that the biblical authors use so much wordplay and even the structure of a sentence to throw little Easter eggs in. For example, very first verse of the Bible, the very first sentence in Hebrew, there are seven words. And the central word is a word that's not translated into English. It's called a definite direct object marker. You can't translate it into English. It doesn't have an equivalent. It's a two-letter word, and it's made of the first and last letters of of the Hebrew alphabet. So you have the first sentence being seven letters with the middle word being the first and last letter of the alphabet. It's like a little hint that right at the very beginning, seven is going to be an important number in the story, right? And we have a seven-day creation week. The very second sentence, the verse two, you want to guess how many words are in that? Fourteen, two times seven. And then at the end of the creation narrative of chapter one, it's actually going into chapter two a little bit. We'll talk about that more later. But the very end of the first 
creation narrative has 21 words, seven times three. So this kind of thing is just uh, all in there to, I think, make Bible study more exciting. Now, I try not to make too much of these numbers. I'm not one of these people that thinks it's some sort of a hidden Bible code, but I do think it's fun grammar Easter eggs just to show you how much care and precision went into these stories. I remember when I was in high school, I had to write poetry sometimes. I don't mind reading poetry, but I hate writing poetry. I'm a prose writer. I can be very verbose. It's hard for me to be that brief. You have to be in poetry. And particularly, at one point, I remember having to write a haiku. That's an extremely structured poem. You have to get down into the syllables. And that is not easy to do at all. So for the biblical writers to be putting this kind of detail in just shows the amount of care and precision and skill that they had and put into this work. So really, at least for me, it helps me to appreciate the text more when I see that this isn't just a religious text. It's a work of art. I'll try to draw attention to some of those details as we go through. Patterns exist all throughout the text. Days 1 and 4 are going to pair up, and then days 2 and 5, days 3 and 6, and then day 7 all to itself. So days 1 and 4 deal with the skies above. So with God's creating the heavens, the skies, and the land, and then day four with populating it with the birds and other air creatures. Days two and five deal a lot with the oceans and the creatures that live in the water. Days three and six with the land and then the creatures, and then day seven being the capstone to itself. So there are several different ways that you can pair up these days where you'll see connections back and forth in between them. And so the creation account is full of all of these different significant patterns of sevens. And there are other patterns like this too. So while the creation account is full of several significant groups of seven, God speaks ten times in those seven days. So we start seeing a pattern of ten show throughout the scripture of times that God speaks. And in fact, that continues outside of this book into the very next one with Exodus, where God speaks ten plagues uh, while in Egypt, and then ten words, or we often call them ten commandments, at Sinai. And all of that is just rooted here in the ten times that he speaks in creation, with the plagues being ten acts of decreation, where he's almost reversing the created order that we have in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1, he speaks light into existence. The last plague in Exodus is when he speaks darkness over the land. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have humanity exhibiting rulership over the animals, and yet in the plagues, we have animals overtaking the land. When you get to Sinai. He's setting up a whole new covenant with a new group of people that he's calling out to be his representative priests, just like we had him giving these ten words over his initial creation of the land and the initial priests of that land, if you will, being Adam and Eve. So there's all sorts of these little details that are in the text that maybe they don't make great preaching points, but I think that they're really important to draw attention to so that we can see just how beautiful the Bible really is. I want to make a quick note here as well on authorship, because this can be a topic of debate for a lot of people, and we'll probably end up doing something in the future, uh, maybe a podcast episode or at least an article on the website related to authorship in the Torah. And traditionally, the first five books of the Bible are grouped together. We often call them the Pentateuch, but originally they would have been called the Torah in Hebrew literature. So this is going to be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, because they all tell a relatively unified story. Genesis is kind of its own thing because it's the starting point. It's kind of like a prequel, if you will, to the 
the other four books, because Exodus through Deuteronomy tell a pretty coherent story of Israel leaving Egypt and becoming its own nation. But you need Genesis to find out why Israel is important in the first place. So those five books kind of go together. The Jews would call them the Torah, which is the Hebrew word for instruction. It's often translated commandment or law. That's why sometimes we have the first five books here being called the law. It's not laws like we think of today, but rather instruction, I think is the best word to translate it. Later on, they would be called the Pentateuch, Penta being five in this case. So that all refers to the same thing. I like to call them the Torah just because that was the original name. So traditionally, Moses is seen as the author of the Torah as a whole. And without getting too much into it, um, it is likely that Moses compiled a good bit of the Torah, but the Bible never actually specifically says that he wrote down every word of it. In fact, there's good reasons to assume that while he may have transmitted some of it, later editors would have actually been the ones to compile all of it together into the form that we have today. And that's okay. That's not a scary liberal position denying biblical authority. It's just trying to understand the Bible within its own context. And we'll probably get into that again sometime in the future. But I just wanted to point out here that this is not necessarily Moses sitting on top of Mount Sinai writing down all of these stories for us. It's likely a compilation of several different oral traditions because in ancient times the average person couldn't necessarily read or write. So these would have originally been orally passed down. I mean, even in Genesis, that's at least 400 years before Moses, by the time you get to the time of Joseph. And as we're starting out closer to the beginning, we're talking about thousands of years before Moses. So it's not like he had all of this firsthand account. It would have been oral traditions that were passed along over time. And then Moses likely did quite a bit of writing it down. And then later on, probably around the time of the exile, several scribes would have worked to compile all of the different traditions together into what we have today. So I just wanted to mention that really quickly because that is something that's going to come up and often be a topic of debate. So just to remind you, this is not something to be splitting hairs with people over. It can be a fun discussion and debate, but it's not a separation issue. And so as we finish out here today, I want to mention a few ways that we should not be interpreting the book of Genesis that I've seen several people do over the years. First is be careful not to read your own culture into the biblical text. There's fancy Bible college terminology that is exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis means to draw out of the text. Eisegesis means to read into the text. Exegesis is good. That's what you're trying to do. You are trying to draw out of. That's where you get ex meaning out of. You're trying to draw out of the text what is already there. Iso, with ice being in E-I-S-O-G-E-S-I-S, reading into the text is taking your own positions, your own assumptions, and assuming that the Bible worked the same way. Unfortunately, that's pretty common. Just because we don't realize the ways that our own culture shapes our perspective. And like we've mentioned before, the Bible exists within a context and it's not yours. So the more that we can understand of the culture of the Bible, the less we will start to read in our own perspectives. So just remember as we go through this that the Bible's culture is not yours. And when we're trying to understand what the text would have meant to its original audience, we have to consider what it meant in that context before we consider what it means in ours. Now it's okay to make application in our own context today, but it's just good to remember that these aren't 21st century Americans we're talking about. These are ancient Israelites. Also be careful not to spiritualize the text. And alongside this, I would put side by side, they're slightly different, but they're connected, so I'd put them together, is also don't read Jesus too much into the book. I understand, as Christians, we center our entire faith around Jesus. Without him, we wouldn't have Christianity. You basically just have Judaism at that point. So I understand the importance of 
seeing the Bible through the lens of Jesus. But we also have to remember that Jesus did not exist yet at this point. Now, before you grab your stoning stones and try to stone me, notice that I said Jesus did not exist at this point. I did not say the Son of God. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God, but Jesus is the physical human person that lived 2,000 years ago. God has always existed, and from a Trinitarian perspective, you have had God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit throughout all of time. But God the Son did not take the form of Jesus until the time of the Romans, and where we are here in Genesis is not the time of the Romans. So despite what so many preachers have said, I don't think that we are supposed to read the Bible looking for Jesus on every page. I remember growing up, that's the sort of thing I would hear. I remember hearing a preacher say, you can cut the Bible anywhere and it bleeds red with the blood of Jesus. And I get what they're trying to say, but I don't think it's very helpful because then you start looking for Jesus in places that he is not intended to be. So you end up with people reading something like God's walking in the garden to approach Adam and Eve after the, they eat from the tree. And they would say, well, since that's God in some sort of human-esque form walking in the garden, it must be Jesus. Okay, could it have been the Son of God taking on human form in that? Yes, it could be. But the text doesn't specifically say that. So we have to be careful not to make everything in this about Jesus. These stories meant something to people who believed in Yahweh for thousands of years before God the Son ever took on human form. And we have to respect that. I'm not saying that the readings of Jesus in the Old Testament or trying to find uh, spiritual meanings to things is completely invalid. I just don't think that that is the main focus that we should have, and I personally believe it has been overemphasized in a lot of Christianity in America. Uh, the average devotional book or commentary is all about trying to find some hidden spiritual meaning behind the mundane things in the Old Testament. And I realize that the Tanakh has a lot of tedious passages, and so it can be tempting to try to find some deeper spiritual meaning, some some nice Christian-sounding Instagram postable verse or application, but that's not the original point of the passage. And so we need to keep in mind what the passage is saying initially and not try to spiritualize beyond that. Remember that we are reading forwards, not backwards. Like we've talked about with watching a movie, you don't typically skip from scene to scene and go all out of order with a movie or in reading a book. Same thing with the Bible. We have to read forward to get to Jesus. We don't want to start in Matthew and go reading all the way back into Genesis. We have to start with where Genesis is. And when we do that, I think it actually allows us to appreciate the story of Jesus even more. Similar to these issues is I see a lot of people trying to make moral examples out of the main characters. Uh, it makes sense. We're looking for that easy application, you know, that one thing that I can take away from my devotions for the day and feel like, oh, since Abraham did this, so should I. I get that, but that's a very dangerous mistake to make in Bible interpretation because not everything the main character does is good. Continuing with the illustration of your favorite movie or book, just because someone's the main character does not automatically mean that every decision they make is a good one. And if it is, that's probably not a very good story. You need the main character to make mistakes in order to have a character arc, in order to show some sort of growth. If they don't ever make mistakes, there's no growth throughout the story. They're the same person they are at the end of the story that they were at the beginning. So when we run into these people in the Bible, just because they're the main character does not automatically mean that is what God wants us to do 
in our lives. I think the most obvious example of this for me is Gideon. And I know he's not in Genesis, but he's in Judges. Several people look at the story of Gideon and how he laid out that fleece before God to decide if he was supposed to go to war or not. And they say, okay, well, if you want to discern God's will, you have to lay out a fleece before him. And there are people who take that metaphorically to say, I'm supposed to have some sort of a test and say, God, if you really want me to do this, uh, have X happen in my life, or let me run into Y person is, you know, something along those lines. Or I've also known people who have literally gotten a fleece of some sort, laid it out, and then often prayed on it over that. But if you read the story of Gideon in its entirety, you'll see that he is not put up as an example of faith. In fact, his his whole thing with the fleece is not an act of faith. It's actually an act of doubt in God because God had already said, I'm going to do this for you. I want you to lead Israel. I want you to have victory. You're going to have victory. And he wasn't confident in that. So he asked God for a sign to prove that he was actually telling the truth. And then when he got it, he still wasn't convinced. And so he asked for it again. When you read the story of Gideon in its entirety, you realize that just because he's the main character doesn't mean I should be doing the same thing Gideon does. Actually, the best application in that instance would be to do the opposite of what Gideon did. But so many people just get caught up in, oh, he's the person the story's about, therefore I should do what he's doing. Just because someone is the main character in a Bible story does not automatically mean that what they do is good, right, or okay. So we have to keep an eye out for that and fight against the temptation to immediately assume what they're doing is what God wanted. Be careful, too, not to make appeals to general science. Can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, oh, well, science says this, or scientists say that. Well, science isn't a person, so it can't say anything. Science does not say anything. It doesn't have a mouth. It doesn't have a voice. And if you say, well, scientists say this is the best thing to do. Okay, well, which scientists? There are scientists in all different varieties. And are we actually talking about experts in that field? I realize this may be nitpicking a little bit, but we need to be precise in what we are talking about here. I see articles that pop up and they're basically clickbait. Archaeologists find the birthplace of Peter. Well, really? Like, how can you know that? You don't. We found a building and it looks like a house and it was maybe in a town that Peter lived in, but that doesn't mean that that is actually where the Apostle Peter lived. You just can't know that. So we have to be honest and specific. Science is not science is not the final word on anything. Science is about getting less stuff wrong over time. Science is a process, and the whole idea of it is we have ideas, and we're going to, through a lot of experimentation, find out what parts of what we think is wrong and cut those out so that we have more that is right. So science is not the final answer. But by the same token, science is also not the enemy of the Bible. And I tend to see people falling into one of those two camps where they either say, oh, look, science proves the Bible with this. Well, not necessarily. We're always learning new things. We're always having ongoing studies happen. And it's nice if the Bible and current science line up on something. But the Bible is not a science textbook. That's not what it was trying to do. And if you stake your entire position on some inscription that was found or an ancient tradition of something, well, what happens if something comes out later on that contradicts that? So science can be a fun parallel to the Bible. It's nice when it intersects with the Bible and can lead to some good discussions. But anything scientific is going to be subject to debate. So it's not going to be our final word in Bible study, but we also have to realize it's not our enemy in Bible study. It is another way that we understand God's creation, and it is a good thing. That is not my specific area, so there aren't too many times that I'm going to be drawing on science. There are plenty of good Christian scientists in all different
different fields that can address issues like that. But I do think it's important because it comes up a lot in these first few chapters. We have entire groups that are based around what is called creation science, where they try to understand modern science in light of a literal understanding of these first six chapters of Genesis. And while I appreciate what they're trying to do, I think that a lot of times it ends up missing the point of the text in order to shoehorn in modern understandings to an ancient text. It's better for us just to take the text as it is and understand it on its terms instead of trying to read in our modern understandings. Yeah, see how we brought in the reading in and drawing out there again? It's all connected, right? Lastly, beware of trying to find your own hobby horses in the text. This happens a lot when someone has a specific point that they're trying to prove, or you might even hear preachers do this on a Sunday morning, where there's just some hobby horse topic that they have that they're either for or against. Maybe it's politics, maybe it's abortion, maybe it's sex and gender issues, whatever it may be. And it just seems like whatever text they're in, it could be Genesis, it could be Proverbs, it could be John, Revelation, you name it, they find some way to end up talking about that hobby horse topic. The Bible is not a proof text for your hobby horses. I realize that as we go through this study, there are going to be verses that some of you have likely heard used as proof texts for certain positions. I'm going to do my best to try to draw attention to those verses to say, here's what they actually mean, because I think that's the best way that we can respect the Bible by letting it speak on its own terms. So if you find yourself reading the Bible and you're constantly coming across verses that prove your position, you're probably reading the Bible wrong. If you're main focus in reading the Bible is, does this back up my conservative position, or does this prove that the conservatives are wrong? You're missing the point of the passage. The Bible is not trying to back up your personal vendetta, be that political or religious. The Bible is its own story, and we have to treat it on its own terms. So here's how I recommend studying Genesis, or really any other book of the Bible. Spend as much time as you can learning as much background as you can. Bible study does not have to be just you in a print Bible in front of you and you're reading until you find your little nugget of wisdom for the day. Bible study is doing anything that helps you understand the Bible better. So if you can spend time studying the background of it, you will be able to appreciate the text itself more. Then go to it again and pretend like you're reading it for the very first time. You don't know who the people are. You don't know who the places are. You don't even know that a couple thousand years into the future, a guy named Jesus is going to be born and he's going to die on a cross. You know none of that. So go in with an inquisitive mind, open to an entire new story. Ask questions like who, what, where, when, why, and create a list of what sticks out for you. I also recommend listening to the Bible in an audio format. These were originally oral traditions. Like I said earlier, most ancient people couldn't read or write. So that means that the average person who believed in Yahweh throughout human history wasn't sitting down with a scroll of Genesis and doing Bible study. They were reliant on the people who could read and write to read it to them and to share it with them. So sometimes listening to the text actually gets you more in the mindset of what an ancient person would have been thinking because you're hearing it instead of just reading it. I would also recommend reading in different versions than what you're used to. I realize versions are a big issue for some people when it comes to the Bible, and I promise we will definitely be addressing that in the future. But if you are comfortable with it, read text in a different version than what you're used to, whatever that may be. If you're used to King James, use the ESV. If you're used to the ESV, use the NIV. If you're used to the NIV, use Christian standard Bible or something else. Just to get yourself out of your comfort zone so that it's just an entirely different experience. Maybe even go for more of a dynamic translation like you would get in a Good News Bible or 
even a message Bible, something like where it's more of like a novel form. So it actually feels like you're reading a story and that can really help you to view it in a whole new light and read in as large of a chunk as possible. All right, there you have it. That is the stuff that you don't know you don't know about Genesis. And now it's the stuff that you know you don't know about Genesis and hopefully some stuff that now you just know about Genesis that you didn't before. Next week, we are going to be jumping straight into Genesis 1 and we're going to be covering the first several verses of that chapter. Really excited for what we have coming ahead here in the next week. So be sure to check in next week. And until then, stay curious and keep asking questions about the Uncut and Unfiltered Bible. You've been listening to the Bible Uncut and Unfiltered. We hope we provide a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to share it with a friend. You can also rate and review on your podcast app to help other people find it. If you'd like to donate to keep our work going, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash thebibleuncut, where you'll get exclusive access to bonus content. You can also check out our website, thebibleuncut.com, for recommended resources and more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.